Well, good morning. Hope you are all excited today to gather, to gather together and to worship again. As you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to make your way to the wonderful epistle to the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 29, as I continue on in a series of messages addressing the issue that I see as a pastor and many see that you probably see as well, that we absolutely have a crisis in the American church today. A crisis of identity. We talked about last week as we looked at our identity and how we in a culture today like to form our identity, whether it be from a hyphen, whether it be based on a gender, whether it be based on a feeling or something else, that we get our identity from our surroundings, even in our culture. We're Southern, so obviously we all love grits, cornbread, fried pickles, and collard greens because we're in the South. But folks, our identity is not defined by a geographical location. Our identity is found in Christ. We talked about that at great length last week. This week I want to share with you a crisis that we have in the American church regarding the issue of independence. Now why do I share that with you? The very definition of crisis, just in a way of reminder... Crisis is defined as an experience. If you'll notice on the next slide, there's a a definition for you of what crisis is. A crisis is something that occurs to us out of the expectation, out of the norm. A crisis may be something that we encounter, uh, that we weren't expecting to encounter. It may be an emotional event, a significant event in our life, a turning point, something that happens to us that causes us. I shared earlier that if you're a young lady and you blow a tire while you're traveling down the road, and you've never changed a tire before, and you find yourself on three tires instead of four, you have just found yourself in a state of a crisis. Very simple example of what that is, right? And if you're a good father like me, you go and you help rescue your daughter by showing her where the lug wrench is and where the tire is and talking her through her changing her own tire, amen? Uh, So we've resolved that crisis. But in our own life, in the church life, in our walk with Christ, where we are today, I would argue there is a crisis amongst us on this issue of independence. Now, there's an image that I shared with you last week also about the current state of our nation where we're dealing with crisis, and we're seeing it in a lot of different aspects, crisis over the issue of whether or not it's our choice to murder a child in the womb, whether we have control over life crisis of whether or not we have the right to defy authority and have anarchy in the streets running wild, crisis over whether or not the church has the right to overrule what the state is dictating and mandating that it apply. There's all kinds of crisis right now, one of them being whether or not we can stay home and watch church online, and hey, that's church too. I don't need the church, I don't need that kind of fellowship because I am a Christian and independently I'm okay by myself. Well, I would argue I want to address that topic today of this independence of the American church and what's going on today as we look at it from the position of the crisis that we find ourselves in. In way of illustration, I want to share with you an image of the Constitution of the United States, or excuse me, the Declaration of Independence. This image helps us understand the founding of our nation and the very nature we have as an American people that we strive after this issue of independence, so much so one of our founding documents was declared just that, the Declaration of Independence. And in it, it discusses things that we believe to be true, that God has given inalienable rights, our Creator has given us something that allows us to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And nothing wrong with those statements that are there, that we believe that our Creator wants us to have those things. Life. What did Jesus say? Uh, I've come so you may have life and have it in abundance. Right? Liberty. I've come to set the slave, the captive free, the bondage of sin that holds us in. I would argue we can look at the, independ- the Declaration of Independence as an affirmation. It's in our blood to desire to be independent from rule, from authority, from taxation, from the demand of government. The birth of our nation, the United States, was founded on the principle that God gave us each these rights. Today, however, I'm afraid that we have exchanged our understanding of, not, of what our Creator means for us to have as we lose our independence and we regain what it means to be dependent upon Christ alone, to be dependent upon the Word of God, something that does not mix naturally with our cultural understanding of American independence. So today's message, I want you to turn, if you've got your Bible there, to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 27 and 29. Now, a wise man shared with me this week, was talking to CEOs about leading their companies, and he made the, the comment that a CEO is, is often the chief, chief remembering officer, the chief reminding officer, that he has to often tell his people the same thing over and over again. I thought to that to myself as a pastor you know, as a, as a pastor, I have to remind our people often of things that we probably know. We probably take for granted sometimes, or we need reinforcement. So the chief reinforcement officer, as I'm going to share this scripture from you, may be a scripture that's familiar. As I share Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 29, while it may be familiar, I hope today we will see it in a, in a, in a way that explains it for us to grasp a hold of as we look to anchor our dependence, not in our culture, not in our constitution, but in Christ through his word. So let's go to his word, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Let's pray together. So Father God, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for Christ Jesus and the cross of Calvary. We thank you for the sanctification we have in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, and we can come to you now eagerly seeking your word, eagerly waiting for your instruction, eagerly waiting to apply it to our daily life, to know and to walk and to follow you in a way that is pleasing. Father, have your way in all that is said and shared during this message. May the Spirit convict us where we need conviction. May it challenge us where we need to be challenged. And Father, may it bring comfort where we need your comfort. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So during this message, I want to share with you five aspects of the issue of independence. Number one, I want to share with you in our way of outline the aspect that independently we are dependent upon Christ. Each and every one of us. Ethnically, we have an independence that can only be found in Jesus. Social economic issues such as money and finances and where we grow up, we can have independence from those issues in Christ. Or even our gender and our identity of who we are, male and female, we are found to have independence in Christ. And lastly, we will find that the scripture shares with us the promised dependence that we have upon Christ for all eternity as heirs to the kingdom of God. Number one, I want to share with you, if you'll go in your Bible and look at verse 27 for a moment, I'll have it up here on the screen also if you did not bring a Bible with you. There's going to be three things that we see in the first part of this message. Number one, that we are independently dependent upon Christ. 
You know, I'm reminded of the statement that God has no grandchildren. Each one of us independently must come to an understanding and a relationship with Jesus Christ, each and every person. No longer will a neighbor be responsible for his neighbor or a brother for his brother or a father for his children, but each man will be responsible for his own salvation through Christ Jesus by hearing the word of God and repenting of their sin and turning to accept Christ. Notice what the author and the writer of this letter, as he's talking to the Galatian church, he's sharing with them, and he tells them right from the very beginning a difference that's, that's present in the text. For as, many as, or for as many of you were baptized. Now he's talking to an audience, but he's also making, number one, the differentiation of dependency. Not everyone that he's speaking to potentially has placed their trust in Christ. And he's pointing out the fact that for as many of you have done that, then you, this applies to. Folks, there is an issue that was in within the church right now that we see that even Jesus reminds us about this. The New Testament speaks about it. That amongst us are wheat and our tares, our sheep and our goats. What do we mean by that? We mean there are those who come to church every Sunday that may have never placed their trust and faith in Christ, that are watching you worship God, they're experiencing you worship God, and they're living vicariously, so they think, through you in their church experiences. But yet they have no part in Christ. They have never had a moment where they've ever said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross of Calvary for my sins. I believe you were placed in the tomb, and on the third day you rose again. Lord, I want to follow you all the days of my life. I believe you are the Messiah, the Christ. Lord, forgive me. Come into my life. And we begin to follow Jesus. There are many who come to church thinking we have done God a favor by showing up and blessing him with our presence. But yet we're just as unsanctified, unrighteous, unholy when we leave the building as we were when we came and heard the word of God preached. You see, the author says, for as many of you were baptized... You see, there's a, not only is there a differentiation between the wheat and the tares, the goat and the sheep that are hearing the word of God, but notice the demarcation of dependency that happens here. What do I mean by a demarcation of dependency? That a demarcation can be defined as a point or a line in which we cross that separates one thing from the other. For example, North Korea, in our, in our history as a nation, we had a war called the Korean War. And the North Korean Peninsula was separated from the South Korean Peninsula by something we know as the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. But that demarcation line that runs along the 38th parallel separates those two countries. If you are in the South, you want to stay in the South. And if you are in the North, you want to get to the South. There's a separation that happens there that if you cross that line, something changes in your status. In our own history as a nation, we understand this aspect of what a demarcation line would be in our, in our life as a nation. There was two gentlemen by the name of Mason and Dixon. One was an astrologer, the other was a surveyor that was sent to the Americas to help break a feud between two states in our nation, between Pennsylvania and between Maryland. And Mason and Dixon's job was to survey the lineage or the line, the state line, and establish the boundary that we've come to know today as the Mason-Dixon line. And the Mason-Dixon line established a difference between the southern states of the colonial states, the nation, and the northern states where free men would be. And in our own history and the atrocity of slavery in our country, slaves that would escape the persecution of their slave owners would often make their way north through the Underground Railroad and other things. And their hope was to hit the demarcation line known as the Mason-Dixon line. 
Why? Because the Mason-Dixon line signified that anyone that would cross over it would become a free man. And they would continue north and chasing after that freedom. And the southern states would try to pursue, but they knew by law when they crossed the demarcation line of the Mason-Dixon line, they were technically free men. Now, how does that relate to us today? Folks, I would argue that the writer is telling us in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Folks, baptism is not an insignificant issue in the life of the church, but yet we treat it as such. We get all bent around whether we were dipped or whether we were sprinkled or whether we were immersed. And we think that it's just a manner of method that separates us. Let me tell you what baptism is. Number one, if it was good enough for Jesus to be immersed, it's good enough for me. Amen? If Jesus was immersed, then I want to be, if I can be, immersed the way my Jesus was immersed in water. But the issue is not whether I immerse or whether I sprinkle, whether I dip or whether I dunk. The issue is, have you made a public profession of faith in Christ? And are you conjoined to Jesus through your profession through the baptismal waters? See, it's one thing to walk down an aisle. Matter of fact, in our history as Baptist churches, we often have this thing we call an altar call, where you get up from where you're at when you're under conviction that you need salvation, and you make your way down the altar, and you come to the pastor that's standing there, and you tell him, that, and I hear the words, I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that's a wonderful thing, and I'll pray with those people that have that issue, and the altar is open for you to come and lay your burdens at the, the feet of, of Christ to receive salvation, but folks, our public profession of faith in Christ Jesus is when we are baptized publicly, individually, but as a congregation, and we witness the joining with the fellowship of the body of Christ by saying, I too am dead to my old way of life, and I am risen to walk in a new way of life to follow Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 5 point us to that text. He says, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. Folks, I would argue for us today that our public profession of faith in Christ Jesus is truly the profession we make through the baptismal waters. We can accept salvation right where you sit, you can accept it at the lunch place in the workroom. You can accept it, accept it underneath the tractor while you're trained in a transmission and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you know you need salvation and you cry out to God, for if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord and I believe in my heart, then I will be saved. Scripture is clear about that. But Jesus also goes on to warn us and remind us that if we do not confess him before men, he will not confess us before the Father, which is in heaven. You can find that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, around verse 30. So we have to have this profession. The writer understood this, that not only was there a differentiation of dependency, a wheat from the tare, a goat from the sheep, those who have placed their trust, but we have the demarcation of dependency where we have crossed the line into freedom symbolized by the baptism and the waters of baptism in our life, where we said we are followers of Jesus Christ. What did Paul remind the Roman church in chapter 1, verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power unto salvation, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. What a wonderful thing when we've stepped across that line, when we've headed north and we've got our true freedom, not found in the Mason-Dixon line, but the true freedom we find in Jesus Christ. 
something that he has given for us, but then we dawn a new dependency. Notice the last part of verse 27. The writer says, For as many as you, many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Most of us this morning, if you're looking around, we all donned our clothing. We put it on. I put on my jacket as I came to church this morning. I put on my boots, my shoes, the clothes that I'm wearing. Folks, when we come to Christ, we don Jesus as if we are wearing Jesus as our robe. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So we may be his righteousness. He clothes us in his righteousness, not because you are righteous by yourself, despite what our culture likes to think. Despite the fact that we think we can do it on our own, this independent nature that we have, folks, we are independently dependent upon Christ for all things. There is no independence when it comes to our faith. There is none. There is no such thing as independence in Christianity. We are solely dependent upon Christ. You can't fix it yourself. You can't do it yourself. You can't maintain it yourself. We can't do that. Why do we try to carry the burden as if we can? Folks, Jesus said, come to me all ye heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. We are solely dependent upon Christ. Individually, each one of us must repent of our sin, turn to Christ for forgiveness, and then depend upon the work of Christ for our salvation and the promises that he has given us. But secondly, I want to share with you, not only is there an issue of independent dependence upon Jesus, but there's also an issue of ethnic independence that we can find in Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 27 at the very beginning. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, we don't really grasp the full context of what the writer is telling us here, but there were ethnic issues going on inside the Galatian church. So much so that those ethnic differences were starting to cause a division again amongst those new believers in Christ. The issue of the Gentile being able to worship Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty, but yet the Jew that was amongst them saying, no, 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 no. You've got to do this, and you can't touch that. You can't taste this. You can't do it that way. You've got to follow the law. And there became this blending now within the church in Galatia of legalistic issues that the Judaizer, those followers of Judaism, those Jewish national ethnic ties, would be bringing into the free Galatian church where the Hellenists, the Greek, would now be saved by faith in Christ Jesus. Now they're trying to be told that, no, 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 in order to be right with God, you Hellenists, you, you Greeks, you've got to do this, and you can't touch that, and you can't taste this, and you've got to wash this many times, and you got to, by the way, you've got to be circumcised. Paul's writing this letter to this church who's so wrapped up in their own legalistic doctrinal issues of what makes them right with God. He's saying, no, time out. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Our ethnic issues that often divide us, our ethnic issues that we bring in that hopefully make us better as a united people in Christ. In Jesus, there is no division based on our ethnicity. No Jew, no Greek, no Irish, no American, no African. None of those things matter in Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Let me define for you the issue of what we call prejudice. And what I want to do for you, I want to examine the prejudices of man and the prejudices of God. And I'm going to share with you the difference between the two. Let me define prejudice for you. The the noun prejudice is defined as the following. 
And this goes along with man's prejudices as unrighteousness, Jew versus Greek that we see in this text. The prejudice means an injury or damage resulting from some judgment or action of another in disregard of one's rights formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge, an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual, a group, a race, or their supposed characteristic synonym. What we have here, see, when we examine man's prejudices, we understand that we are not finite, or we are finite. We're not infinite like God. We're not omniscient like God. We're not omnipresent like God. See, we have a limited ability to understand things. So often our own prejudices come from a lack of understanding about another person. You see, God's prejudice isn't the noun version. God is the, God's prejudice is more the verb, the action of righteousness, sin against righteousness. Would you be shocked if I told you God was prejudiced? It's a biblical fact. He's prejudiced. God cannot stand in the presence of sin. Therefore, he favors righteousness. He always leans towards righteousness, always shuns against sin and sinfulness. But see, unlike you and I that just complain about it, God did something about it. You see, God sent his only beloved son, placed him on the cross of Calvary. And he told us that if whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You can find that in John three sixteen. But if you read on to 17 and 18, it gets even sweeter. For he did not come to condemn the world, for the world was already condemned. He came to save the world. You see, God doesn't just complain about things like we do in our own prejudices about what we like or what we don't like. God says, I'm going to provide a solution to the issue. And therefore, my prejudice now will be a just prejudice. Let me give you the verb definition of prejudice. To injure or damage by judgment or action. To cause to have prejudice. I would argue there's two things that the scriptures help us understand about God's prejudice. Number one, that faith removes God's sin prejudice. Faith removes God's sin prejudice. Romans 3.20 says the following, Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? You see, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Hellenist, doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're African-American, whether you're Anglo, whether you're German, whether you're Latino, doesn't make a difference to God. Jesus justifies all of us, and he does it the same way by faith. Since God is one, who will justify circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, whether Jew or Gentile, faith unites us with Christ. Our ethnic independence can be found only in Christ. When our hyphen that often defines us today is not the height of who we are, but Christ Jesus. Number two, though, faith removes the prejudice of ethnicity. Galatians 5, 6, he would, Paul would go on to write this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything. Did y'all catch that? Now, his audience would have understood. He wasn't talking about just the aspect of the physical circumcision. What he was saying here was, because you're the nation of Israel, or because you're a Hellenist Greek, far from God at one time, none of those things matter. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Folks, that's a beautiful message for us to embrace, to understand key point is our, while our ethnicity may describe our uniqueness of design, 
While ethnicity may describe our uniqueness of design, our true identity is found in our dependence upon Christ. Y'all seeing a theme here that Jesus is the heart of everything that's going on in this message? Our dependence upon Christ and Christ alone is what makes us his people. But thirdly, let's examine verse 28 a little bit further. Socioeconomic independence can also be found in Christ. You see, Jesus tends not to leave anything uncovered in the scripture, does he? He talked about where we were from, our, our faith. We talked about ethnic issues being Jew or Greek. Now he's going to talk about our socioeconomic status. Look in the second part of verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Now the word slave, if you underline that word in your, your text, you'll find the word, the Greek word, bondservant or doulos, which means bondservant or slave, depending on how it's being used. D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. Paul referred to himself over and over again. I am a bondservant of the Lord Christ Jesus. I am a slave to Christ Jesus. One who is under the ownership of someone else. Folks, if we are in Christ Jesus, guess what? We are a bondservant. We are a slave to Christ Jesus because we were bought with a price. And that price is the blood shed on Calvary's cross. We are a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what the writer is telling the audience. There's neither slave nor free. Now you can imagine how we divide our society today. In America, we hear on the, on the news often the issue of the lower class, the middle class, the upper class. And then we get into the bantering of who should pay their fair share tax. And wherever you stand on that's irrelevant. But the issue is this, that in the house of God and before Christ Jesus, there is no difference whether you are in slavery to someone or whether you are free. We are one in Christ Jesus. We have no right and no ability to turn our nose down at somebody who is not in the same social, political, or economic standards that we live in. I had a chance to visit Vietnam last year doing some work to strengthen churches there. And it was brought to my attention that in Vietnam, they have no middle class. And as I began to look around and trying to understand that statement as I was shared, as it was shared with me about having no middle class, it became apparent that they were right. You were either fairly economically impoverished and riding a broken scooter trying to get from one place to the next, scurrying around, and then I could turn around in the other direction and I could see a, a person driving a Maserati sports car that cost more than most of our homes. There was no middle road. There was no Honda Pilots, no Odyssey vans running up and down the road. There was no Toyota Camrys going to and fro. You were either on one end, the very low spectrum, or the very high spectrum. There was no merger in the middle like we see here in America. But what a beautiful understanding that in the Scripture, that doesn't exist either. Because whether we are free or whether we are a slave, we can still be one in Christ Jesus. See, there's a disappearance of distinction that goes on. We're no longer identified by our role in society. You're a janitor. You're a custodial engineer. You're a doctor. You're a lawyer. You're a teacher. Things that often define what we do. But church, they should never define who we are. Who we are in Christ is what defines us and provides our dependence upon him. But Christ is the valuator of creation. Notice he's telling us here, whether slave or free, they are both equal at the foot of the cross. Both equal at the foot of the cross. And thirdly, the breakdown of barriers. You see, Jesus has a way of taking a person that's captive and setting him free. He's got a way of taking a person who thinks he's rich in temporal things 
and showing them the true riches of eternity that come in the future. Jesus has a way of breaking down barriers and kicking down walls, that barrier of hostility that exists between the unrepentant sinner and God. And Jesus says, I come to remove that hostility so that you may be right with God. Folks, we can all be equal at the foot of the cross. We can all inherit an eternal blessing beyond. We, we can't even begin to describe what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus is the break, barrier breaker. Regardless of our social and economic status of life, we are equal. We are equal at the foot of the cross. Now, that doesn't downplay the differences, folks. That doesn't downplay how we are uniquely differently designed. This morning you heard Corey playing his guitar. He did a great job. He's gifted in that area. Dana, playing the piano, gifted in that area. If you had me playing the guitar this morning, you'd probably be looking for a new worship leader. I'm not as gifted, not as gracious in those areas. That's not my gifting. Does that make me less valuable than Corey or Dana? Well, maybe in Dana's sight, but you know. No, we're equal at the foot of the cross, right? I have my gifting. You have your gifting. You have an area that you are driven by daily when you wake up to do this thing in honor of Christ because you know he has gifted you for that thing. But folks, that difference doesn't make us at odds with each other. That difference doesn't make you or me any different in our value in the sight of our creator. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, neither slave nor free. We have dependence upon Christ and independence from these things in our culture that tie the tie us together and bind us. But fourthly, I want to share with you that we have an issue of gender independence found in Christ. Now, I would argue if you've had your head out of your house at all in the last couple of years, you realize this issue of gender identity and gender independence, if you will, has become part in our culture today. Well, how do we speak upon these issues? Well, let's look at what the text tells us. Look at the second part of verse 38. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, let's put this text into proper context. What's not being said here is we're all one gender. We're not talking about a general neutral statement that the Lord has given us through his scripture. There is a distinctly different aspect between a male and a female, And we know that from birth. It's designed that way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We see here that our gender doesn't define us, but defines our uniqueness in Christ. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 1, 27 for a minute. And the scripture tells us this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him. Now hold on to your seats. The scripture says the distinction in the creation of man. He created him, male and female, he created them. Okay, so chapter 1 in Genesis, if you do a study on the book of Genesis, it's interesting that Genesis 1 gives us kind of broad strokes of what went on in the creation account. The seven days and the earth and the animals and all that stuff. On the sixth day, the Lord created man, Adam, out of Adama, the earth that he breathed together. But when you get into chapter 2, it's almost like, okay, you got the big picture, now chapter 2, we're going to get into the details. Let me tell you how he did it. So Genesis chapter 2, turn over one page and go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 and 23. And let's look at the details of this account of the creation of man and woman. In Genesis 2, 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Now, note right there, there's nothing wrong with medication, folks. God was the first to use anesthesia. 
What did the scripture say? He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. God knocked him out so he wouldn't feel the pain. He took the rib from the man and he created a woman out of it. Look at the second part. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up the place with flesh. God used sutures, divine sutures. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her near to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Folks, there's no doubt in the creation account of how God uniquely defined our roles as male and female together. We work together. God, gender doesn't deny us. Our gender does not deny us but rather determines our unique roles in God's creation. We have a uniqueness of design, a special purpose for male and female. We understood this. Now imagine being Adam, and he was given the task of having dominion over all of the earth and naming the fish, the fowl, the, the feathers, all the stuff that was happening and having to create them. Then when he looked around and he got done with his work, he looked around and he was grieved because he saw no one like him. There was none like him. And God, loving, just, merciful, looked upon Adam and realized that he needed to make a helpmate for Adam so Adam wouldn't be alone. And boom, we have the story in Genesis 2.21-23 about this issue of woman being created. Our gender doesn't deny us, but rather it determines our unique role in God's creation. Here's what Paul would say to the Corinthian church on this issue of men and women and our dependence. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Did y'all catch that, gentlemen? Nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Because God has a unique role for each one of us. And each role for you as a mother, bringing life into this world through the life that God creates in your womb, the use of the man, all of those things work in concert together. While God created us uniquely different with a unique purpose, we are of equal value in Christ, male and woman. Now, I didn't get into the complementarian issues and the egalitarian issues of how some view this passage and often use Ephesians chapter 3, verse 28 as a proof text to condone women in the pulpit, women as pastors. Folks, that is not what this text is telling us about. This text is not focused on our other issues. This text is focused on the primary doctrine that we are dependent upon Christ and we were equal at the foot of the cross. This doctrine that we see here, this teaching that we see to the Galatian church, is not about whether a pastor can or can't be a woman. This is an issue about our salvation, that in Christ we have true dependence and a true promise that we can depend upon. Part five of this, let's look at that promise for a minute. The promised dependence upon Christ, verse 29. And if, y'all catch that part, beginning of your verse? That's what my Bible says. And if you are Christ's, notice there's always a clause there. We talked about the wheat and the tares earlier, the sheep and the goats. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you a child of God? Has there been a time in your life where you know that you know that you've asked God to forgive you of your sins? That you've repented, meaning metanoia, to turn away from, go in the other direction. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I believe you died on the cross of Calvary. I believe you were put in a borrowed tomb. You rose on the third day. Help me to live to serve you. We follow through in the decision of baptism. 
to tell the world, I'm a follower of Jesus. Has there ever been a time where you know that you know that you've done that? If you can't think of that time, I would argue you're probably not saved. I'd argue if you've never confessed your sins to Christ and pleaded for forgiveness and repentance and said, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sins, I accept you, I believe you are the Messiah, I'd argue you're not saved. You may know about God, but you don't know God. But you can know God. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know his love. He is ready right now. The Bible tells us that after his resurrection, he spent a few days on earth, about 40 of them, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he stands now waiting to intercede on our behalf. The advocate, the counselor, the paraclete that's with us is a deposit that we are a child of God. But Jesus says, man, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. Folks, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to have eternal life. But it comes at a cost where we have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and we have to follow Jesus to be true disciples of him. So number one, there's a profession in this verse, a profession. And if you are Christ, do you know you're Christ? If you are, then let's move on. Notice the possession. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Now the Jew would have understood this, being the inheritors of the righteousness, the the land that God has promised, the, the flowing land of milk and honey. The future goodness of the kingdom of Israel, being a part of the nation of Israel, the Jew would have understood what it meant to be Abraham's offspring. But you know that as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, when we put our trust and faith in Christ, we become grafted into that family. We become adopted into the family of God. Once not righteous by God's choosing, but he allows us to become righteous through Christ Jesus. And if we are Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring. There is a profession, there is a possession, but notice the third part of it, verse 29 at the end. We are heirs according to what? The promise. The promise of God. Now, if we believe God's nature that God cannot lie, he cannot be in sin, he cannot be like what we are naturally, he is holy, holy, holy then when God makes a promise to Father Abraham that he would become the father of many nations, plural, many peoples, plural, not just the Israelite, not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. And folks, we can count on God's promises to be true, for God cannot lie. The profession of faith, are you in Christ? Do you know that you're in Christ? Do you know that there's been a time in your life where you've accepted Jesus? If not, let that be today. Right where you're at, you can pray to receive Christ. Lord, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to walk in you. But secondly, I would argue you need to. You must. It's a requirement. You unite with a local church. For we're not the church unless we assemble. In the book of Revelation, as I shared last week with you, Jesus mentioned seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 at the very beginning of the Revelation. And he called every one of those churches by name. He didn't call them by their pastor's name. He didn't call them by their deacon's name. He didn't call them by their formal name. He called them the church at Ephesus, at Pergamum, at Sardis, at Philadelphia, at Laodicea. He called them by name. Folks, if we're in Christ Jesus, we must unite with a local church and begin to grow and follow Christ in discipleship, beginning to learn the rich treasures and the mysteries of God through the study of his word. So the promise dependence that we have upon Christ is for all. Let me close with this as I started. If we are in Christ, we can depend upon the promises of God with the full assurance 
of its fulfillment that will come. Our Declaration of Independence, as beautiful as a document as it is, signed by several men, only 26 copies remain today in existence that we know of. But what a beautiful understanding that we are not independent from God, but we are completely dependent upon Him. While we have hope that this great document secures us, let me share with you a document where our dependence truly lies. It's the Word of God. When we open God's Word, our dependence upon Scripture, our dependence upon the revelation that God has given us through His truth is where we lie and stand as children of God. Not on a declaration that a man has made, but on the dependence of the declared Word, thus saith the Lord. So as we close today, I hope and pray that your, your independence is dependent upon Christ Jesus, that we understand that we can do nothing apart from Christ, that our salvation is dependent upon Him and solely upon Him, by faith and faith alone, not by works. It's a gift of God, lest no man shall boast. Folks, we in the church in America today need to become dependent upon God. We need to become dependent upon His Word dependent upon His Son, Jesus Christ, and dependent upon the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we grasp that understanding, I believe only then will we see the crisis in the American church finally subside and allow us to become who God intended us to be when our dependence is solely upon Him.